Welcome to the Jerusalem Jones Podcast. I'm Dr. Ken Hansen, a.k.a. Jerusalem Jones of Treasures in Time. That's my company, and this is my podcast. I'm a bit of a thespian, so let me bring history to life with a pinch of theatrical flair. Don't forget to subscribe as we plow into the past. This series is called Dig Deeper, the Untold Stories of Biblical Archaeology. Episode 6, Digging Up David. Jerusalem in the 21st century. The flashpoint of geopolitics today, as it has been from time immemorial. Though united under Israeli rule since 1967, the facts on the ground are nonetheless evidence of two Jerusalems, one Jewish and one Arab. It is in the sleepy Arab suburb of Silwan that the fragile modus vivendi of the two hostile populations is being threatened by, of all things, an archaeological dig. Incredibly, the ground beneath has given up over years of excavation the remains of what might well be the palace of none other than King David. Israel's first great king, whose praises are chanted in the streets of the holy city even to this day, is also the focus of another conflict, this one between competing scholarly camps in the ever-changing field of biblical archaeology. To be sure, King David has quite a few detractors these days. Not only is he lambasted for his bloody misdeeds and personal peccadilloes recorded in the Bible, but a good number of contemporary archaeologists cast doubt on his very existence. If he did exist, so they say, he was probably little more than a local chieftain dwelling in a tent somewhere, and the tales about him are likely no more reliable than those about, say, King Arthur and his famous round table. But we should also recognize that this is more than just a debate among ivory tower academics. It has real-life consequences for the state of Israel today. Because, believe it or not, if David goes, a lot goes with him. That includes the very identity of the multitude of Israelis who call Jerusalem their home and who fervently believe that the city they inhabit was the capital of David's kingdom, just as it is the capital of today's Jewish state. The naysayers certainly make valid points. One prominent camp of archaeologists argued that their never was a united kingdom under David or any of his descendants. Much less was there ever an Israelite empire representing a regional power in the ancient Near East. There were only two squabbling Israelite kingdoms, the inhabitants of which simply fantasized that once upon a time they had been united under a great and noble king. For many long centuries, most people simply assumed that if a story is in the Bible, it must be true. In the early 19th century, the renowned American archaeologist and explorer Edward Robinson trekked across the Holy Land in search of biblical sites. Convinced that the grandeur of King David's Jerusalem must have been something to behold, he was fairly shocked to witness the extent to which the city had declined. He wrote, Jerusalem is still in all its features an oriental city, in its closeness and filth, and its stagnation in moral darkness. It was again difficult to realize that this indeed had been the splendid capital of David and Solomon, in honor of which Hebrew poets and prophets poured forth their inspired strains, where the God of Israel was said to dwell on earth and manifested his glory in the temple. 
Robinson certainly noted references to David all over the city, in monuments still seen today. Historians speak of the tower or citadel of David, and describe it as built of large hewn stones and of immense strength. He also made reference to David's tomb. The sepulchre of David and his descendants, as we know, were upon Mount Zion, and they were called apparently the sepulchre of the sons of David, and also of the kings of Israel, and were still extant in the times of the apostles. How things have changed in the course of the last century and a half. Nowadays, at least among the scholarly community, it's assumed more often than not that if it's in the Bible, it must not be true. It must be false. Indeed, there's a lot to be skeptical about. The Citadel of David, with its imposing tower, wasn't built by David at all. Rather, it's largely an Ottoman structure from the 1500s, with various elements dating to the Mamluk, Muslim, Byzantine, and Herodian age. And the name Tower of David can't be traced back any earlier than the 5th century. As for the tomb of David, we can visit it today on the sacred hill known as Mount Zion, except this isn't really David's tomb. It's another medieval structure, which, before Israel's 1948 War of Independence, was a mosque, and before that, a church. At the time of King David, the hill now known as Mount Zion was an uninhabited area far outside the city walls. The real Mount Zion lay to the east across a valley. That's where the real David would have been buried, if he existed at all. That said, let's have a look at what the biblical record says about Israel's illustrious king, warts and all. Let's flash back to the 10th century before the Common Era and ask how this David is presented as a hero or, reading between the lines, an ancient Israelite tyrant. Israel's first king, Saul, had died in battle, fighting the Philistines upon Mount Gilboa. How unstable must the Israelite confederacy have been at the moment of Saul's death, and how authoritarian is the king-in-waiting? Readers of the Bible never think of David as a schemer or conniver, but as a pure heart. But make no mistake, the Israelite confederacy is dying to be supplanted by a new warrior king whose entire reign would be consumed with bloodshed. Make no mistake, the charismatic new leader still has his share of political battles. Saul, it seems, has one surviving son by the name of Eshbaal, the Bible renames him, however, calling him Ishboshet, a man of disgrace. In those days, the captain of Saul's army, Avner, decides to transfer the capital of the Confederacy eastward to Mahanaim, across the Jordan River, where he crowns Eshbaal king. If David is really the godly character he's made out to be, why doesn't he step aside at this moment and let Saul's rightful heir take the throne? Instead, David moves to consolidate power by persuading the elders of Judah to anoint him king in Hebron, which he makes his capital, at least for the time being. Due to his link with David and with Abraham, who is buried there, Hebron was destined to become a flashpoint in the Arab-Israeli conflict to this day. Still a shrewd politician, David uses a bitter quarrel that breaks out between Avner and Eshbaal to overcome them both. Eshbaal is assassinated in the end, 
and David now rules as undisputed monarch. He will, however, live by the sword for the rest of his life. His first action will be to attack the Canaanite stronghold of Jebus, a move undertaken for purely political reasons. David recognizes something that America's founders implicitly grasped, that in order to hold a confederacy together, a centrally located capital would be a key ingredient. He and his general, Joab, attack the Jebusites by stealth, gaining entrance to the city via an underground water channel that cuts directly beneath the walls and fortified towers. The unsuspecting inhabitants are taken by surprise and promptly massacred. David, of course, is never one to shrink from bloodshed. Can archaeology perhaps verify this account and with it the existence of the historical David? At the end of October 1867, Sir Charles Warren, an officer in the British Royal Engineers and one of the earliest European archaeologists of the Holy Land, explored a hand-chiseled conduit leading from Jerusalem's ancient water source, the Gihon Spring. Warren recorded the adventure in his journal. It was easy walking until we reached 600 feet into the tunnel. Then we began crawling on all fours. As we saw bits of cabbage stalks floating by, we realized that the waters had started to rise. There I was with a pencil, compass, and field book in my hands, and the candle for the most part in my mouth. My companion and I had just four inches of breathing space. When observing, my mouth was underwater. Where the tunnel began at the spring, I noticed that the water first collected in an underground cave-like chamber. With the help of my team and local Arab workers, we cleaned out the cave and found the entrance to a tunnel. We followed it for forty feet, where it ended in a curious shaft which rose into the darkness above our heads. A few days later, we returned to climb the shaft. By jamming the boards against the side of the shaft, we succeeded in getting up twenty feet. On lighting a piece of magnesium wire, we could see twenty feet above us, a piece of loose masonry impending directly over our heads, and as several loose pieces had been found at the bottom, it occurred to both of us that our position was critical. Without speaking of it, we eyed each other ominously and wished we were a little higher up. We kept climbing to find another tunnel at the top of the shaft, and a series of caves leading up towards a blocked entrance. Slowly it dawned on us that we had unearthed a hidden water system leading to the spring from somewhere on the southeastern ridge. This, coupled with the ancient wall and the tunnel leading to the pool of Siloam, had striking implications. It meant that there had definitely been a settlement outside the medieval walls of the city. At nine hundred feet into the tunnel, we discovered false turns and began to go in a zigzag direction. It was here that I inadvertently swallowed part of my lead pencil, nearly choking. When we came out shivering, it was dark. We had been nearly four hours in the water. It took another hundred years for the full meaning of Warren's discovery to be grasped. The most ancient part of Jerusalem was in fact outside what we call today the old city walls. It was located on the ridge to the southeast, not far from the water source. If there were a David, this is the place he would have called home. Nonetheless, Charles Warren's water system 
known today as Warren's Shaft, appears not to be made by human hands, that was assumed for over a century, but is rather a natural limestone sinkhole. It's unlikely that David would have entered the city in this way. The excavations Warren began were destined to continue over the next hundred-plus years, and the final verdict has yet to be delivered. Nonetheless, in the last few years of the 20th century, reconstruction work beneath a new visitor center being erected in the vicinity uncovered an unknown tunnel. It led from the main tunnel to another feeding pool, affording free access and bypassing Warren's shaft entirely. Pottery dating to between 2000 and 1550 before the Common Era, well before the time of David, was also recovered in this tunnel. What this means is that just as Warren's shaft seemed to be debunked, another candidate for David's secret tunnel appeared. Could the Bible's version of the city's conquest be spot on after all? Returning to the biblical record, we are told that following David's stealthy victory, the city will henceforth be known as Yerushalayim, Jerusalem, the city of peace. From this moment, Jerusalem will play a central role in Jewish history from generation to generation. It will also become a major point of contention in world geopolitics. Unfortunately, and perhaps as part of David's legacy, peace is something it will never know. David was arguably a man with just the right qualities for ruling in a brutal age. But the painful truth is that he wants absolute power. His major policy goal is to conquer the entire land of Canaan, which none of the previous judges was ever able to accomplish. David twice trounces the very Philistines with whom he had previously consorted. The Israelite ruler next sets his sights on Transjordan in the east, conquering the kingdoms of both Moab and Edom. He finds himself ruling over both major trade routes in the region, the Via Maris, hugging the Mediterranean coast from Egypt, and the King's Highway, passing through the eastern desert. We're even told that he conquers Damascus itself and extends his realm all the way to the Euphrates River. Tradition would have us believe that Israel reaches a high point of military and political dominance under David, becoming a major power in the ancient Near East. Can archaeology substantiate any of this? Or are the minimalists on target in deeming all of the biblical account fantasy? In 1993, in northern Galilee, near Israel's border with Lebanon, a most amazing artifact was unearthed. It happened during a decades-long excavation of the ancient site known as Tel Dan. One of the diggers suddenly shouted that he had found something. It was a basalt stone engraved with ancient Hebrew lettering. It was apparently erected by an unnamed ruler to commemorate his conquests, among them a certain king of Israel, plainly visible in one of the lines. One line beneath two Hebrew words were destined to grab the world's attention. Bet David, the house of David. Everything about it points to a date of the ninth century, less than 150 years after David himself. Of course, it doesn't refer to David, only his house. 
but how could there possibly have been a house of David if there had been no David? Of course, the minimalists have tried to dismiss it, since the Hebrew letters spelling David can also be read as Dod, meaning uncle. But with the phrase King of Israel right above, why would it then talk about an uncle's house? Some have even gone as far as to suggest that it's a forgery. But the very idea that the elderly Israeli archaeologist in charge of the dig was in reality an arch-forger seems absurd to most. Bottom line, this stone slab is the closest thing we have to a smoking gun in the battle for David. We still have no evidence of any kind that David extended his empire as far as the Euphrates River. But if we count this inscription as authentic, he made it at least as far as northern Galilee. But is the new emperor David brilliant and far-sighted, or is he an ancient Napoleon of sorts? The one thing everyone can agree on is that the illustrious King David committed multiple personal peccadilloes. Take, for example, the Bathsheba incident. He spots her one day while surveying the grandeur of Jerusalem from the rooftop of his palace, gloriously bathing on the roof of her own house. The suddenly infatuated David sends for her, presumably because he can. Bathsheba is the wife of a Hittite mercenary currently off waging one of David's expansionist wars against the Ammonites. In ancient Israel, it's quite kosher for a man to have multiple women. He can have as many wives and concubines as he pleases. But by an admittedly sexist double standard, a woman can have only one man. When David proceeds to sleep with Bathsheba, he is committing adultery not against her, but against her husband, Uriah the Hittite. Worse still, Bathsheba becomes pregnant with his child. Next comes part two in the playbook of political scandals, the cover-up. Let's call it Bathsheba Gate. David, unwilling to face judgment for his misdeed, now connives to hide his paternity. David decides that Uriah must be eliminated. He orders that Uriah be sent to the front line of battle and that his comrades should withdraw when the enemy approaches. He correctly guesses that Uriah will be killed in the heavy fighting. It's time for a prophet named Nathan to step in. Nathan rebukes the king and decrees death for the child of the illicit union. No amount of repentance will do the trick. When the child is born, he quickly falls ill and dies. According to the biblical prophet, there will be no end of strife and bloodshed in David's house, and this fearsome prediction is about to be fulfilled in an episode that pits the king against his own son, Absalom, whose name ironically means father of peace. Absalom's backstory involves the rape of his half-sister, Tamar, by her full brother, Amnon, after which he dispatches hitmen to murder the vile rapist. King David, unable to inflict the death sentence on his son, instead sends him away for three years, later fully reinstating him. It is then that Absalom begins his grand plot for power. Declaring himself king, he proceeds to Hebron, where he raises a standard of revolt. All Israel, including David's favored tribe of Judah, rallies to Absalom, and the rebellion is on. 
The spin on Absalom is that he consorts with his treacherous advisor, the infamous Achitophel, while David flees east to Transjordan. David gains the upper hand through intrigue and subversion. The Jerusalem priesthood, led by Abiathar and Sadok, is still in David's pocket. And their sons act as spies on Absalom. The final battle will take place in the wood of Ephraim. David's forces have the strategic advantage, and the battle turns into a rout for Absalom, who ends up clumsily fleeing on a mule, his long hair flowing in the breeze behind him. As he escapes through the thicket, his wavy locks get caught in a low-hanging oak branch. The mule continues on, leaving Absalom dangling above the ground. David's general, Joab, though instructed not to harm the king's son, nonetheless stabs the helpless rebel with three spears, leaving his swordsmen to finish the job. But Absalom's rebellion will not be the end of disunity and dissent in the ranks of David's kingdom. It will, on the contrary, be a precursor of a great civil war to come in which the kingdom of David and his son Solomon will be torn in pieces through rebellion and strife. Speaking of rebellion, archaeology provides yet more evidence of David via an account of the rumblings of revolt against David's descendants. It's related on a black basalt monument discovered by an Anglican minister named F.A. Klein, who came to the Holy Land as a medical missionary in the mid-1800s. On August 19, 1968, Klein spotted at the campsite of a Bedouin tribe about three miles north of the Arnon River, where Biblical Dibon was located. While there, I learned from the Bedouin of Dibon of an inscribed stone lying in the nearby ruins of this ancient city. I asked to be taken to the stone, and my Bedouin friends gladly obliged. While I did not realize it at the time, I was looking at the longest monumental stone inscription from ancient times that had ever come to light anywhere in Palestine. Today it is known as the Moabite Stone, or the Misha Stila. When I first saw the stone, it was lying on its back, with the inscription face up. I lifted the stone to see if there was any writing on the back. There was none. Unable to read the inscription, I made a sketch of the monument and copied a few of the characters in my notebook. I then negotiated with the Bedouin for the purchase of the stone, and obtained their oral agreement to sell it for 100 Napoleons. That was about $400 at the time. As for the precise content of the Moabite stone, it's another kingly stela boasting of conflict with David's house, dating from about 860 before the Common Era. The script is Phoenician, sometimes called Paleo-Hebrew. The text of the inscription refers to King Misha's successful Moabite rebellion against and military victory over the Israelites. Laying out the nature of the grievance, the stone declares, As for the king of Israel, he humbled Moab for many years. Later, the stone relates that the house of David dwelt in Harunen. It's there in plain Hebrew. And again we ask, how could there have been a house of David if there had been no David? 
returning to David himself, even after all his misfortunes, the Bible still isn't done impugning the great king. And neither are his modern critics. David's kingdom is about to be harshly judged. The reason? David takes a census. As divine punishment, 70,000 of David's people perish by plague. Is King David now properly chastised any less an egomaniac? Judging by his behavior down to the end of his life, he's an awfully slow learner. For David, the ongoing question will be how he can remain king of all the tribes while favoring his own and a single city, Jerusalem. A new rebellion breaks out over the preferential treatment of Judah. Enter Sheba, not to be confused with the famous queen. He's of the lineage of King Saul. It's up to Sheba to shake things up, which he does by raising a new battle cry. En lanu chelek David. We have no part with David. He proceeds to the secessionist north in another threat to the integrity of David's realm. As usual, David responds with force. He dispatches his mighty men and a contingent of troops, along with his general, Joab. Hopelessly outnumbered, Sheba takes shelter in a city of northern Gal Galilee, Abel Bet Ma'aka. An unnamed wise woman convinces Joab to spare the city, since its inhabitants oppose Sheba. She convinces the people of the city to murder the unfortunate rebel. Another rebellion crushed, David can carve another notch in his kingly girdle. He has centralized power in Jerusalem, but even that isn't enough for his monarchy. He must centralize worship as well. Long before he had brought the Ark of the Covenant up to Jerusalem, though he was mocked by his wife Michal for making a spectacle of himself. Now well on in years, David is emphatically denied the privilege of building God a temple as decreed by the prophet Nathan. He simply has too much blood on his hands. In any case, David secured his place in Israelite and world history. Like all monarchs, he had to designate a worthy successor by the end of his life. We know him as Solomon, David's son by Bathsheba. The trouble is, David lies dying, and his elder son named Adonijah declares that he should be the rightful king. David orders that Solomon be anointed king, thus denying Adonijah his great ambition. Intrigue follows. David's general, Joab, along with the priest Abiathar, side with Adonijah, who compounds things with the request of Solomon that he be given David's servant, also his old-age cuddle bunny, Avishag, as his wife. Correctly perceiving this as a veiled threat to his own succession, Solomon has Adonijah banished and Joab put to death. Yet David is forever revered for his godliness and Solomon for his wisdom. During the decades that followed, in the days of David's grandson, Rehoboam, ten of Israel's original twelve tribes would break away, forming a rival kingdom to the north of Jerusalem, covering the region all the way up to Galilee. Sensing the weakness of the Israelites, the Bible relates, Vayahi b'shana ha'chamishit le'melech rechavam ala shishak melech mitzrayim al Yerushalayim. 
in the fifth year of King Rehoboam, King Shishak of Egypt marched against Jerusalem. 1 Kings 14.25 The pharaoh, known in Egypt as Sheshank I, left his own account of this northern campaign carved into the walls of the Temple of Karnak in Egypt. From the victory scene, city list at Karnak, comes a partial cartouche interpreted to have read The Heights of David. While the interpretation isn't ironclad, if it's accurate, it represents the third extra-biblical inscription making reference to the flawed yet illustrious king. David may have built himself an empire, but he has also bequeathed a nightmare. And the conflicts that dogged him in his own lifetime have morphed into a new round of controversy in the geopolitical powder keg of today's Middle East. Flash forward to the 20th century. In the 1960s, British archaeologist Dame Kathleen Kenyon began excavating at a hilly outcropping directly to the south of the Temple Mount called the Ophel. Unlike the hill today incorrectly called Mount Zion, this is the authentic location of David's ancient city, assuming, of course, that there even was a David. There she found a portion of a stepped stone structure that she thought was part of a casemate wall, that is, two parallel walls divided by perpendicular walls, built by King Solomon in the 10th century before the Common Era. Kenyon was unmistakable in her appearance, dressed in faded old clothes, chain-smoking, with a ubiquitous dog trailing at her heels. Never appearing particularly intellectual, she was warm, enthusiastic, and charming. She declared, David must have cleared a space within the Jebusite town, but the size of this residence is unlikely to have been great, for anything grandiose would have taken too much space within the restricted area of the Jebusite Davidic city. Further to the south, at the northern end of the Ophel, I discovered a section of a massive public structure that I considered to be part of a new casemate wall built by King Solomon. I dated the wall on the basis of the pottery associated with it to the 10th century BCE, the time of King David and King Solomon, according to the Bible. Decades later, Israeli archaeologist Elat Mazar of the Hebrew University of Jerusalem began wondering whether Kenyon's casemate wall was in fact part of David's palace outside of the Jebusite city, a possibility Kenyon never even considered. That's when archaeology and the aims of a politically motivated group of Israeli settlers suddenly converged. It just so happens that in the mid-1980s, when a commander of an elite unit of the Israel Defense Force, David Be'eri, visited this part of Greater Jerusalem, he found that the specific locations of past digs were covered with garbage and waste. He subsequently left the military to establish the Ir David, or City of David, foundation, commonly known as El Ad, a Hebrew acronym standing for El Ir David, which means to the city of David. Its purpose? To retrieve and restore the city's ancient heritage. To advance this goal, the El Ad Foundation helped found a new excavation at the summit of the city of David, headed by Elat Mazar on behalf of the Institute of Archaeology of the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. The Israel Antiquities Authority oversaw the excavation, 
but the site itself was mostly funded and operated by El Ad. In 2005, Mazar's excavations of the city of David uncovered a massive structure that she dated to the 10th century before the Common Era. Its sheer size is just what we'd expect in a great centralized kingdom ruled by a king dated by the biblical account to exactly this time frame, David. Could this be the remains of the actual palace of King David? Could it prove that far from being a local chieftain dwelling in a tent, David was more or less exactly who the Bible says he was, the absolute ruler of ancient Israel, including all of the territory disputed in the ongoing Israeli-Palestinian conflict. The minimalist camp was quick to argue that the structure could date from the independent Jewish kingdom of the first two centuries before the Common Era. That's some eight centuries after David. But deep inside the great stone structure, Mazar found Phoenician-style ivory inlays and other imported luxury goods dating exactly to the time frame of David and Solomon. As the dig continued, so did the controversy surrounding it. For some time, progress was limited by three families, one Muslim, one Christian, and one Jewish, living in houses where Mazar would have most liked to explore. At the heart of the issues is the fact that the dig was initiated not in Jewish West Jerusalem, but in the Arab neighborhood of Silwan in Arab East Jerusalem. That's just over the Green Line in an area considered part of what the Palestinian Authority wants to be the capital of the future Palestinian state. El-Ad points out that many of the homes in Silwan originally belonged to Jewish families who were expelled in the wake of a series of Arab riots in 1936. In spite of the fragile status quo in Jerusalem, El-Ad began acquiring property in Silwan in a number of ways. It took legal remedies to return Jewish land to its original owners. It bought various Arab properties on behalf of Jews and began construction of new housing as well. Most controversially, it utilized Israel's absentee property law to take control of homes declared vacant. The late Elie Wiesel Holocaust survivor and noted humanitarian praised the activities of El-Ad and served on its public council. The logic was simple. Jews should not be prohibited from living anywhere they wish and Jerusalem should never again be divided. Meanwhile, peace activists and the international community at large have condemned Israeli settlement activity in Arab East Jerusalem. Make no mistake, the excavations elicited controversy within Israel as well. The government of Israel, of course, treads carefully around anything that might exacerbate the fragile status quo in the region, such as digging up a volatile area. And many among the academic community have charged that archaeology should never, under any circumstances, be mixed with political motives such as those held by the Israeli settlers. Archaeology is a science, not an agenda. Furthermore, shouldn't archaeology be exclusively funded by the government, not some private entity? That, of course, involves money that's by necessity raised through taxation. But what if, as a taxpayer, you have no interest in archaeology? Never mind, you're paying for it anyway. A privately funded dig, by contrast, faces no such ethical dilemmas. Raise as much money as you like and spend it however you like, as long as you make your investors happy. As for the Palestinian side, it's not in their interest to admit the presence of the palace of King David smack in the heart of Arab East Jerusalem. 
That, of course, is also a political motive. To be honest, maybe the motives of El Ad are tainted and the conclusions overblown. Perhaps digging for David amounts to much ado about nothing. Maybe this isn't David's palace after all. But what if it is? Doesn't that make it one of the most important archaeological sites ever excavated? Doesn't it deserve to be excavated? And if El Ad didn't do it, who would? And look what El Ad, as a private concern, has done with the site. It may be a tourist trap, but it's a beauty. At the entrance to the site is an ornately carved harp reminding us of the great king's musical gift. And in conjunction with the municipality of Jerusalem, they've developed a whole archaeological park, bringing a new wave of tourism into the city. It's been charged that a number of Palestinian Arab residents of the area have been evicted in order to make way for the park. The mayor of Jerusalem argued to the contrary, that the area was run down and basically a slum, that the Palestinians in question had been living there illegally and that they would be resettled in much better accommodations. In the United States, for example, there are eminent domain laws by which private property owners are required to surrender their homes for fair compensation for the greater public good. Is not uncovering the ancient house of David the greater public good, not just for Jews, but Christians, Muslims, and whoever reveres the memory of the great biblical king? Isn't the economic development of the city in everyone's interest? It's also asked, what will become of Jerusalem's economic well-being if the city is in fact divided and walls and borders go up across its most holy sites? Governmental agencies are also subject to the constraints of bureaucracy, which often means delay, mismanagement, waste, and inaction. That doesn't obscure the fact that a private concern like El Ad has its own deficiencies to deal with, such as making claims that can't be substantiated in order to generate public interest. One spokesman for the excavation went as far as to insist that the biblical patriarch Abraham would have been exactly at this site. That's hardly a claim that good archaeology can substantiate. In fact, it's been counterclaimed that not a single artifact has surfaced linking either King David or his son Solomon with structures uncovered in the excavation. But Israeli archaeologist Elat Mazar begs to differ. In fact, a second phase of the excavation was underway by February 2007 and revealed that the well-known stepped stone structure was much larger than originally thought, with walls up to 20 feet thick. The structure had long been recognized as a feature of East Jerusalem, and some had tried to link it with an edifice known in the biblical books of Kings and Chronicles as the Milo, built by King Solomon, but never defined as to what it really was. Some archaeologists even thought it might have been built by the ancient Jebusites, from whom David originally conquered the city. But we now know that the structure was part of a truly massive royal complex, dating to a time that would place it exactly within the lifespans of David and his son Solomon. We still can't definitively say that David or Solomon lived here, as our minimalist friends repeatedly point out. But if they didn't, who did? Moreover, a palace of this size doesn't befit a small fiefdom. It's characteristic of the headquarters of a regional power. What we have here is an example of Bible and artifact coming together almost seamlessly. And the discoveries continued. During the 2012 excavation season, Mazar came upon what might be ancient Jerusalem's earliest alphabetic text, dating to the 11th or 10th centuries before the Common Era. It may 
indicate surprisingly widespread literacy during the days of David and Solomon. Today, the bulk of the excavations in the city of David have been completed, but there are still plans afoot to dig in the most sensitive parts of Jerusalem beneath the old city and its polyglot, multi-ethnic quarters. There are plans to restore the true ancient city underneath the one visible to the eye. It's Jerusalem 2.0, underground. Down there, no stones are thrown, no rubber bullets are fired. The only light is artificial. But the controversies surrounding all of this and what El Ad has already done to the area are all too real. Perhaps that's because Jerusalem is today, as it has always been, a focal point of geopolitics. From the days in which David first vanquished the Jebusites, it's been attacked 52 times, captured and recaptured 44 times, besieged 23 times, and destroyed twice. Ironically, we'd be hard-pressed to find any place on earth more prone to violence and bloodshed than this city of peace. The fact that subterranean archaeology is on the front line in today's conflict is but a new wrinkle in the ongoing battle for David. For better or for worse, the diggers will continue to dig. And that's the way it is. Israel's greatest modern poet, the late Yehuda Amichai, summed it up. Jerusalem is like Atlantis that sank into the sea. Everything there is submerged and sunken. This is not the heavenly Jerusalem, but the one down below, way down below. And from the sea floor they dredge up ruined walls and fragments of faiths like rust-covered vessels from sunken prophecy ships. That's not rust. It's blood that has never dried. 